Thank you very much, David. For those of you that don't know me, my name is Allison, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here. And this morning, we are continuing our sermon series in the Apostles' Creed. This week on CBC Radio, a scientist was being interviewed, and she made an interesting philosophical comment. She said, we're a funny bunch, humans. We tend to believe that what we cannot observe does not exist. Now, she happened to be talking about bat communication rather than philosophy, but she went on to explain that bats have an incredibly complex system of language. Not only do they use ultrasonic sound to make a mental map for navigation and hunting, but they also communicate in really sophisticated ways. Bat mothers babble to their babies and babies learn to form words. Bats hold grudges and they remember favors. But 80 years ago, the first guy to discover echolocation was ridiculed. He was a young Harvard undergrad who teamed up with a physicist, and together, they held squirming bats up in front of ultrasonic devices. How about that job? At the time, ultrasonic devices were mainly used for military purposes, and these two researchers were claiming that bats had echolocation abilities orders of magnitude more sophisticated than the finest military devices of the day. They were laughed out of the room. They were denied funding and shouted down at conferences. Apparently, there is a pattern for discoveries that are hard to see to initially prompt widespread disbelief. So here's just a couple more for you. You should also know that coral and plants have demonstrated hearing abilities. Whales whisper to their calves, and an elephant dictionary is being developed to track the very specific sounds, including one specific sound to identify a threatening human and one for a non-threatening one. Last year, a groundbreaking book came out saying that beneath the forest floor is an entire communication network between trees, where they not only warn one another about threats, but they can also share resources in a cooperative rather than competitive way. All of these are incredible examples of communication networks that are difficult to perceive. This morning, we are talking about another sort of communication network that can be difficult to perceive. This communication network is, in fact, a person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit connects us to one another and incredibly connects each of us who believe to Jesus himself. Today, we're going to continue our series in the Apostles' Creed, considering the line, I believe in the Holy Spirit. This person of the Trinity can often be overlooked, but the truth is that we can't know God apart from the Holy Spirit. And one thing about God, God wants to be known. So this morning, we're going to begin by considering the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. Does the Holy Spirit just show up on the stage after Jesus has left the building? And if not, where do we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Secondly, we'll consider what Jesus says himself about the Holy Spirit. And finally, we'll reflect on what this means for us today. Our main scripture reading today is going to be um, the focus of our second section. What does Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? But we're going to do a bit of an overview before we get to that. So let's pray. God, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears to see and hear the truth that you would have for us this morning. 
God, would you humble our hearts to receive the word that you have for us, whether it's a word of encouragement or challenge. And would you draw us more to yourself through your Holy Spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. So some of us may be familiar with the story of the Holy Spirit being sent to the disciples after Jesus ascended. This can be found in the book of Acts chapter 2. But for the first mention of the Holy Spirit, we have to turn our Bibles all the way back to the beginning, to Genesis, and the start of the very first chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Let's just sit with that for a moment. The Spirit of God hovering over the waters. At the very beginning, before all else, over the chaotic, murky waters, the Spirit of God hovered. God's Spirit had a role in creation. And we will see throughout scripture that God's spirit has a creative role of doing a new thing. Let's keep that in mind. In the Old Testament, God's spirit is a sign of God's presence and power. We see an example of God's presence with the cloud that led the Israelites in the desert by day and the pillar of fire by night, a powerful example of God's presence with them and guiding them. We also see the Spirit of the Lord as an expression of God's power, the extension of himself whereby he carries out mighty deeds. When you read phrases like the hand of God or word of God or wisdom of God, this is evidence of God's Spirit at work in mighty ways and revealing truth. Indeed, one of the ways we see evidence of the Spirit in the Old Testament is the prophetic word. Jesus describes the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, and that is consistent in the Old Testament as well. A prophetic word is a word of truth for people to pay attention to. Both David and Ezekiel describe the Spirit being with them and speaking to them, and then they were enabled to speak truth or a prophetic word. In the Old Testament, we see the Spirit of God come in a particular way upon particular people for a particular purpose. Some examples of this include Joshua, who had the Spirit upon him as he led the Israelites into the Promised Land. The Spirit of God also came upon Othniel, who became Israel's judge and led them into battle. The Spirit of God was upon Gideon, who was also anointed for leadership, and Samson, who was given miraculous strength. The Spirit also inspires people toward holiness. Ezekiel 36, 27 says, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The word for Spirit in Hebrew in the Old Testament is ruach, which is also a word used for wind and breath. Spirit, wind, breath. Sometimes I find it helpful just to take a deep breath and remember that God's Spirit is within me. In the creation story, it says God breathed the breath of life into his people. And we're going to look at one particular Old Testament account of God's Spirit from Ezekiel chapter 37. Just listen to this story. The hand of the Lord was on me. Now remember, the hand of the Lord is an expression for God's power. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. 
he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath, ruach, enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord, wherein I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord." Isn't that an incredible story? Do you see the creator spirit breathing life into what was dead? Life out of death. This story contains so many aspects of God's spirit that we see throughout the Old Testament. We see a prophetic word, a word of truth, bringing about a new reality. We see a person, Ezekiel, being anointed with the spirit for a particular purpose. We see a creative, life-giving word. We see the spirit, the breath, and wind. Spirit breathing new life into these bones. God's spirit doing a new thing. What was dead or hopeless can be restored and brought to life. This is good news for us. The spirit of God in the Old Testament is a creative, life-giving force revealing God's presence in particular places and on particular people. So let's now take a look at what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit and pay attention to what is consistent and what might be different. Our readings this morning are from the Gospel of John. Jesus is having a longer conversation with his disciples and after the Last Supper and before he's handed over to be killed. The conversation spans a few chapters, and Jesus weaves themes throughout. And here are two snapshots where he talks about the Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 to 20. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And then John 16, verse, uh, starting at verse 7. 
But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. The first thing that we might notice is what Jesus calls the Holy Spirit. This is unique to John's writings. It's one of those words that's hard to translate. It's translated here as advocate. Other translations say counselor, comforter, or helper. And it's usually worth taking a closer look at those words that are hard to translate as they are often rich in meaning. And that's true here as no one word captures the full picture of the Holy Spirit. So a collage will give us a better idea. The Greek word is parakletos or paraclete. And there's lots to unpack in this word. Para means to come alongside or summoned alongside. And paraclete has legal connotations, like an advocate or legal counselor who pleads on someone's behalf. That's where we get the advocate and counselor language, but it's sometimes translated as comforter and helper. Well, paraclete is a noun, a person, but it's closely related to the verb parakaleo. It's like baker and baking, the person and the action. The verb parakaleo often gets translated as encourage, or comfort, strengthen, appeal, persuade, or my favorite, come on, you can do it. As I was struggling at one point to write the sermon this week, I started smiling, imagining the Holy Spirit going, come on, you can do it. And I got back on task, mostly. The word paraclete is only used five times in the Bible. However, the verb for encouragement, come on, you can do it, is found 120 times. 120 times of promising, imploring, urging this encouragement, comfort, strength. And Leslie Newbegin tells us, John is identifying the source of all this calling and comforting as no human achievement, but as a gift from the Father a gift whose coming is made possible by the intercession of Jesus. The source of all this encouragement throughout Scripture is not in ourselves, but a person. Encouragement himself. Comfort herself. Our advocate. The one summoned alongside, appealing on our behalf, urging us on. Not just the personification of encouragement, but the embodiment of encouragement. And what does Jesus first say about this embodiment of comfort, strength, advocacy? He says, the advocate will be with you, will abide, will make his home with you, be in you. Jean Vanier says this, Jesus reveals to them that they are not first of all going to do things, but God is going to live in them. 
Later we will see that the Spirit is in them. They will do the works of God. Jesus called his disciples first to be with him and then to be sent out. And the Spirit comes to be with us. Remember the expressions of God's Spirit in the Old Testament are about presence and power. Yes, power to do incredible things, but also presence. An at-homeness, our encourager, our advocate with us. And this person, the embodiment of comfort, strength, advocacy, cannot be separated from God the Father and the person of Jesus. There are so many lines in these few chapters that it feels like Jesus is just playing ping pong with words, saying, I am in my Father, and he is in me, and I am in him, and the Spirit is from my Father, and I will send the Spirit. And all this intertwined language emphasizes the interplay of our triune God, Father, Jesus, and Spirit. And so not only does the Spirit make home in us, but this means the living God does as well. Leslie Newbegin again, this dwelling of God with his people will be made possible by the coming of another counselor, the paraclete. There's lots to unpack in these verses, but we'll just highlight a few of the things that Jesus says. The Holy Spirit helps us know God, reveals truth, and Jesus says it's better that I leave and send the Holy Spirit. Chapter 16, uh, verse 13 says, The Spirit of truth will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Glorify is for one's true nature or essence to be revealed. The Spirit makes the true nature, character, essence of Jesus known. And this fits with Jesus saying, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus goes on to say that all that the Father has is mine. And so the Spirit glorifies Jesus, revealing the true nature, essence, and heart of Jesus. And in so doing, helps us to know the very heart of God. Jesus also refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth and emphasizes his revelatory nature. That is his work of making things known. Chapter 16, verse 13 says, He will guide you into all truth. And verse 8, He will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit enables us to know truth. This is, again, consistent with what we've learned about the Spirit in the Old Testament, the Spirit of wisdom, enabling people to know and speak truth. In chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says that it will be better for you if I go away. Did you stumble over that one? It still trips me up. How can it be better? What could be better than having Jesus in front of you, eating a meal with him, going fishing together, and top of my list, asking him some questions? How could there be something better than Jesus in person? To understand how it could be better, we have to look back at what we learned about the Spirit in the Old Testament. But before we do that, we're going to look at a New Testament case study. So we see these three things, God being made known, truth being revealed, and that it's better for them to have the Holy Spirit, so clearly played out for the disciples between the Gospels and the book of Acts. In the Gospels, the stories about Jesus, the disciples are constantly not getting it. It's very encouraging. You can tell they don't understand. 
In John 13, which comes just before our conversation we're exploring today, we have this clear example of Peter not understanding what Jesus is doing when he washes their feet. He gets it wrong more than once. But have you seen Peter in Acts? After Jesus has ascended to heaven, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem for the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's told them about. They receive the Holy Spirit, which is another super cool story, and then Peter is like on fire. He stands up and interprets this crazy situation for everyone, and then he recounts with authority, confidence, and crystal clarity exactly who Jesus is and why believing in him leads to life. Then he's asked for money by a man who's begging and can't walk. And again, with boldness and authority, he says, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And the man walked. This Peter is hardly recognizable from the Peter a short time earlier in John's gospel. What happened to him? The Holy Spirit happened to him. So what has changed between the Spirit of God we see in the Old Testament and what Peter and the disciples are living starting in the book of Acts? The Spirit is not a new person, but there is new access. The character of the Spirit is consistent, but the accessibility has changed. This is the same creative, life-giving force that we see in Genesis, who's present with people and enables them to do incredible things. The same spirit that reveals truth, that brings understanding and allows people to speak truth. But when we see this God's spirit in the Old Testament, it tends to be concentrated in particular places and expressions. When the Israelites are in the desert, they move when the cloud and fire move and stay when they stay. They don't want to wander from the presence and guidance of God. In Exodus 33, the Lord tells Moses, my presence will go with you. And Moses says, don't send us away from here if your presence is not coming with us. In the temple, their place of worship, the innermost chamber, the holy of holies, is where God's presence dwells. And only one priest, once a year, can enter that space. And he has to wear a cord around his ankle so that if he dies in there, they can just pull him out so that nobody else has to go in there. It's that sacred. There was a curtain, this embroidered, very thick cloth that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And when Jesus died on the cross, the gospel writers tell us that at that same exact moment, this four-inch thick curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies spilled out. New access. No longer is the presence and power of God concentrated in particular locations and on particular people for particular purposes, but it is widely available. The very essence and power of God available for all who believe. Okay, story time. My husband and I met as kids in the summers visiting our grandparents who had cottages on the same little bay. And a funny thing happened when we started dating. We knew we had always been part of each other's lives, but we didn't realize how much. There were more emails back and forth over the years than we remembered, and then this old photo surfaced. So this is my extended family and Jordan's family at the cottage. And if you zoom in on the middle, yep, side by side, 90s fashion and all, there we are. I didn't realize how close we had actually been. 
When we started dating, I was living in Toronto, and Jordan was finishing school in Rhode Island. We would talk on the phone the days before FaceTime, talk on the phone like this, <laughs> and occasionally get to visit and actually be in the same place. But none of that compared to when we got married. Same person, different access. It was wonderful to be together and not have to say goodbye anymore. We got to know one another and are still getting to know one another in new ways. So as with all analogies, this one's limited, but bear with me. I wonder if the difference between the relationship possible with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a little like the difference between before and after we were married. As we started to get to know one another, I realized that he'd been there all along and more a part of my life than I had known. When we went from dating to married, our relationship grew as we had more access to one another. And in a similar way, the Spirit of God was present in the Old Testament, but concentrated in times and places and upon particular people. Now, I don't understand the physics of how the Spirit interacted more broadly at that time, but I imagine it's similar to how the Spirit can reveal truth to people today who don't believe. But what we know illustrated in that striking image of the curtain being torn in two, was that Jesus' death ushered in a new era of new access to God's presence and power. So what does this new access, this new kind of relationship, mean for us today? We've already considered the powerful change we can see in Peter, from the waffling, despondent, not understanding disciple, to one teaching with authority, healing people, and a foundation for the church. There's so much more we could talk about, but for today, we're going to reflect on how the Spirit connects us with God and one another. So think back to that image of the forest floor, beneath the forest floor, of that underground tree network that are in communication with one another and with a uh, central mother tree. The Holy Spirit connects us with God and with one another. The Holy Spirit is actually the only way we can be united as the body of Christ. We hear this term, and that's how we actually get to be joined together as the body. And our unity, our working together as the body, is actually evidence of the Spirit at work. And before we even know God, the Holy Spirit is drawing us to God and making us known. I shared before a story about a Bible study with a student who was exploring faith. We were coming to a complicated part of the passage, and I was trying to figure out how to explain it to her when she said it, is it kind of like this? And laid out a profound explanation, clearer than I ever could have been given. As my jaw dropped open, I thought, wow, the Holy Spirit is clearly at work revealing truth to her, because I don't know how else she could have said that. So the Spirit is at work in helping people to know God. In this new era, the Spirit is broadly available for all who believe, who all who say, I'm going to trust. The early church was amazed when they saw both Jews and people who were not Jews filled with the Spirit of God. All who believe are united in the Spirit as Christ's church. The Holy Spirit helps us to know God and enjoy God's presence. I was on a run the other day praying through lots buzzing in my mind. I thought, I'm just going to leave that all behind and just run and enjoy being with God. I wish I could say I ran better, but I did run more peacefully. We could have a whole sermon on how you hear from God or know if the Holy Spirit is nudging you. 
But for me, it's often in the thought that comes from left field that was not at all what I was going to think next, but that fits perfectly. Sometimes I've laughed at being shown something I didn't understand. Other times, it's more like that punch in the gut, one of those, oh, that's hard, but it's really good to think about that in a different way. The Holy Spirit also connects us with one another. I have a friend and mentor who seems to have a particularly close connection to God's Spirit. I don't talk to her often, but I can't tell you the number of times when I have been in despair or having a really hard day or trying to write a sermon, and out of the complete blue, she will reach out and say, hey, is everything okay? God is bringing you to my mind a lot. I call it her spidey sense. Once I was in an especially despairing place, and I hadn't talked to her in months, but I found myself thinking, I wonder if she's going to reach out today. Today is really bad. And sure enough, out of the blue, she sent me a message. While I was working on the sermon this week, I was having a rough night. I was deeply concerned about two people in my life, and I was feeling helpless to know what to do. My mom sent me an email. She just arrived in Palm Springs. For almost 30 years, six women have gone to Palm Springs each year, and along with some fun in the sun, they spend hours each morning praying for their families. So my mom was asking how they could pray. I just spewed a quick email back about my tears and concerns and that I had to write a sermon. And she said, okay, we'll pray for you tonight. I texted her later and said, did you pray? Because within minutes after sending the email, I was washed with peace that lasted all night. I was able to focus and get a significant portion of writing done. And the next day, one of the people I was really concerned about had turned a corner. I know how I felt before, and I know how I felt after, and I don't know how else to explain that other than their prayer. So what does a spirit-filled, indwelt community of God look like? Well, Acts chapter 2 describes a community like that. This comes right after they've been filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." What could that look like for us? What if, like that church, we were devoted to God's word and community together? What if we ate together, like all the time, and invited others to join us? What if we laughed and played together? What if we knew enough to both cry and celebrate with one another? What if we shared what we had so that no one in our community was in need? What if people were joining our community because they were experiencing how good it is to know God? As you may have heard, over the last few months, we are working toward clarifying our vision and purpose. We want to be a community like that. We want to know God better, to care well for one another, and to see flourishing in our neighborhood and city. There's more to do in terms of figuring out what this looks like, but we hope you will join us. Finally, for each week of this sermon series, we're suggesting a particular practice. And this week's practice is called Lectio Divina, which means sacred reading. 
As you read a passage of scripture a number of times, you listen for a word or phrase to stand out. You then read a couple more times and ask the Holy Spirit to help you know what that word or phrase means for your life today. If that's new for you, I have a handout with some simple steps I'm happy to share. It's a great practice to do on your own or with a group. And it's amazing what God can reveal and how he meets us right where we are with something we needed for that day. The Spirit connects us with God and with one another in a crazy, cool communication network, a little like that tree network. And like it was for those scientists with the bats, there is more communication going on than might be apparent at first glance. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you, through the power of your spirit, would draw us all closer to you, to know you more. And for those of us that have yet to believe, who don't know what that means, who aren't sure what it would mean to trust you, would you give us courage to ask you to reveal yourself to us, to help us to know that you are real? God, I pray that you would make yourself known to us and that our faith and hope in you would uh, lead to more and more life and joy and peace in knowing who you are. For we ask this in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.